Plastic is used in lots of life-saving and life-enhancing products, but that doesn't mean it's the perfect material. How could we reinvent plastics for a happier, healthier future? Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we explore how circular, regenerative and fair solutions are better for people, planet and prosperity. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll hear from entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com, where you can subscribe to updates and our monthly edition of Circular Insights. It's episode 108. Welcome back to the second part of my wide-ranging conversation with Sean Sutherland, co-founder of A Plastic Planet and PlasticFree.com. In this episode, Sean explains why, instead of seeing a miserable picture ahead of us, we can reinvent a better, brighter future. As Sean says, by fixing the plastic crisis, we'll fix so much else. Sean Sutherland an award-winning serial entrepreneur across several industries, wants to ignite social change. A Plastic Planet is one of the most recognised and respected organisations tackling the plastic crisis, and Plastic Free is the first materials and systems solution platform for global creatives. At the United Nations Plastic Treaty negotiations this year, Sean and A Plastic Planet partnered with the Plastic Soup Foundation to launch the Plastic Health Council. This brings expert scientists to the United Nations Plastics Treaty negotiating process to highlight the impact of plastic chemicals on human health. These days, we find plastic in almost every part of our lives, but that doesn't mean it's the best or only solution. Many of those people who resist the idea of a move away from plastics tell us that it's a fantastic material, that plastic products help us solve all kinds of challenges. The plastics industry spends millions on promoting plastic as the perfect material for thousands of products, being cheap, lightweight, clean and convenient. But we're becoming more aware of serious downsides for our health and for the health of our living planet. On social media, you can see people cherry-picking examples of plastics used in medical and safety products, such as syringes, personal protective equipment, PPE, safety glasses, life jackets, and so on. I've noticed most of these people are in roles that depend on the continued use of plastics. But the examples they list aren't the whole picture. And it's not a given that those examples are of plastics that are safe in use or safe at the end of use. What's more, those examples don't mean that we should just go along with the continued expansion of single-use plastics and other plastics. Instead, let's find better ways to design products, packaging and systems to meet the needs of people, planet and profit. So we leave a better world for the generations who come after us. In the first conversation, which went out in episode 107, we discussed the new PlasticFree.com solutions platform for creatives, showcasing plastic-free materials and products, such as the degenerative sneaker. We moved on to greenwash and why Sean thinks the word recyclable should be banned. Then we explored the importance of understanding chemistry, to help designers and material technologists get clear on the good and bad aspects of chemical processes. Then we discussed some of the latest scientific advances that point to linkages between plastics and a wide range of serious health conditions. In this episode, we discuss neuromarketing, some of the uses of microbeads and microcapsules that you might not know about, and why systems change is even more important than changing the materials. Sean tells us about the work of the Reusable Packaging Coalition, founded by another podcast guest, Joe Chidley. 
we ask why big companies are finding it so difficult to break away from those last century systems. Take, make, use and dispose. And how those businesses risk becoming irrelevant, following in the footsteps of Kodak, disrupted by better solutions. We rejoin with Sean talking passionately about why it's up to all of us to reinvent our future. And at the end, I'll be back with my usual roundup of what I took away from both parts of the wide-ranging and inspiring conversation with Sean. We invent the future. We have to reinvent the future and create a very different picture of this positive, bright, optimistic, exciting future that I feel a personal responsibility to create that vision and help uh, build a roadmap towards it because I didn't grow up with the Armageddon miserable picture of the future that my sons now have. And I feel an absolute responsibility because I've been such a big part of the problem for my entire life really of hyper-consumption and the, um, just the, the way that we live believing more and more and more stuff is gonna make us happy. And I think uh, we we all have a responsibility now to paint a picture of a different future. Mm, I think you're absolutely right. And, you know, the, the story that we tell ourselves that more stuff's going to make us happier, that's not a story that we invented in our own minds. It's, you know, it's how marketing pitches things to us. Um, and um, <laughs> I won't go into another one of my, my rants about um, about marketing, but I've started bookmarking. Um, you know, interesting articles about. Uh, there's even a even a thing called neuromarketing. Wow. So um, yeah, lot, lots wow. an, another interesting <laughs> interesting yeah, yeah, that's side project. Hole, yeah, yeah, you know. absolutely. But but one one great book. If you haven't read it, you would love uh, the day the world stopped shopping, uh, by J. B. McKinnon, who is a Canadian journalist. He also wrote the Hundred Mile Diet, and I was fortunate enough to interview him a couple of years ago. And he, he, we talked about exactly this, obviously, from the minute we are born, because he, he was saying, don't feel guilty about being a consumer, mm. because from the minute you are born, we are bred to consume. Mm. So we, we, the people that can step off that hamster wheel of, I've got to wear more in order to buy more and live the life that I believe will make me happy. The people that have the bravery to step off that, I think are really phenomenal. Mm. I haven't stepped off that. I still get a little buzz when I buy something. Uh, and you know, I, I would love to imagine that I could be brave enough one day to step off that consumerist tra- treadmill. Mm. Well, just going back to the neuromarketing, the dopamine buzz comes from the anticipation of buying, not from the actual you know, buying and wearing it. Greenpeace did some work on how long the shopping buzz actually lasts. Um, and um, it's about 20 minutes or something The you know, that the, the feel good from the anticipation of what's going to arrive. And by the time it arrives, <laughs> that yeah, buzz right. is that buzz is dead. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, you're on to the next thing. Yeah. Yes. Somebody and, said to me once, I'm going to develop this new little thing for uh, Amazon, which when you click buy now, there's a little drop down and it says, so buy now, buy tomorrow, buy in a week, buy mm. in a month borrow from a friend yes well that would be flipping genius because i am also that person maybe on a clothing website that i'll put things in a basket and then i'll think i'm not going to buy and then tomorrow if i really 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 want them then maybe i will and it's phenomenal how few times you go back Mm, exactly and that i think that was the advice from greenpeace was to was to do exactly that and um yeah i think um there there are you know people feel that there's so much to do that it's overwhelming and as we said um the danger is that people get stuck but i found with the changes that i've made um they i i get a kind of you know a repeat buzz from every time um we do that thing and um one of them coming coming back to chemicals and microplastics i didn't realize until recently that there are microplastics in things like fabric conditioner you know i kind of thought that in cosmetics it's the which I don't buy. It's the beads for scrubs and things like that. So you would kind of know that they were there, but <laughs> it's it's not. And they're, they're there for all sorts of other reasons. 98% of all personal care products, shampoos. These little capsules of containing, um, you know, other chemicals and 
yes, they're invisible. So, so when obviously my background is skincare, so I know how it how it works. To give skincare like a, a moisturizer, a wonderful feel, you need thickness, you need mm. acrylates, mm. they're plastic. So that's why 98% to give you this extraordinary feel of premium luxury, um, uh, 98% of all products on the market do contain microplastics. It's not the scrubby bits. No. So when you get the European Union now saying we need to ban them, uh, then we realize it's an extraordinary move. It's not those little hand washers with scrubby bits for gardeners, mm. which is what people always thought. It, it's actually so much more insidious than that. Plastic is everywhere. It's in the paint on our walls, mm. in coatings everywhere. Mm. So it, you're right, even seeds are encapsulated in plastic. So it is phenomenal how this incredible but toxic and indestructible material has infiltrated itself into every single aspect of our lives. Yes, you're, you're so right. And um, yeah, I think it's finding those simple things that you can do that that get you started. So in terms of the, the fabric conditioner, um, I was shocked when I read that, but I wasn't too worried because for several years we've swapped fabric conditioner for vinegar in the washer we buy buy in um bulk cartons um yes they're plastic cartons but they do go in the recycling hopefully they end up being recycled um but much much cheaper your clothes don't smell of vinegar because it all gets rinsed out um and you avoid the need for expensive fabric conditioner and all those chemicals that you're putting into the into the rivers afterwards um, it's like and, a miracle ingredient isn't it <laughs> yeah exactly yeah 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 we use it you know for spray cleaners and um yeah it's and it's another one of those things that we had a perfectly good solution but then some marketers have found a way of telling us that this was going to be slightly better and we all believed it so um that brings us on to um a concept of yours that i really want to unpack a bit more that of permanent packaging um so help unpack that a bit for us please right so when we talk about plastic-free championing the materials of the future, the materials that are available at scale now, we also want to talk about what's the systems change. So in the last six years, we have taken more resource from the planet than in the entire 20th century. That's such a shocking thought to me. We all know, you know, world overshoot or earth overshoot day, earth overshoot day, is getting earlier and earlier every year. I think last year it was something like the 22nd of July. If you take that by country, then in the UK, Earth Overshoot Day for, for the UK is in March. So we are literally taking the resources from our children's future, making stuff with them today, selling them today and calling it GDP. So for me, any opportunity where we can stop the single use culture because plastic was the material that enabled us to create this single-use culture of tape mate, chuck it in a bin for some mythical recycling fairy. Wouldn't it be extraordinary if we could create some systems where things are not single-use? So one of the things I'm very proud that we're a, a partner of is the Reusable Packaging Coalition. And this is working with two fantastic individuals called uh, Joe and Stuart Chidley. And the Chidleys have done this brilliant thing of bringing together competitive brands, competitive retailers. So your Boots, your Superdrug, your Tesco's, all the retailers that normally would not sit around a table together. The Unilever's, the P&G's, the Body Shops, the Lushes, you know, all those people in that space, bringing them together to agree that we will standardize packaging and we will make packaging something that you can reuse many, many, many times. So what they are going to be building is the infrastructure that means that if you have a 250 ml shampoo bottle, let's say, then that bottle will be used by many brands. The same bottle probably be made out of metal. And that bottle will then be in a complete closed loop system. So imagine you go to Boots, you pick up your regular shampoo, it's in a metal bottle. It's already filled. So no convenience is lost for you. You pay a deposit, yes probably a digital currency. You know, you pay a deposit on that bottle. So it has a value to you. And you will make sure that bottle goes back into the system that you don't just throw it into a waste bin. But the convenience side of it is very important. I might not go back to that boot store. I might go somewhere else. I might go to Starbucks, but I can drop that 250 ml bottle off 
in thousands of stores that are part of the new system of reusables. I get credited. I can now perhaps buy a cup of coffee in Starbucks in a reusable cup. So suddenly you've created this entire system where nothing hits the bin. The brands don't even own their packaging. They lease their packaging. So they're not responsible for its collection, washing and redistribution. The umbrella organization does that. So really, if you look at the milk industry, as it used to be, um, and this is now thinking, what's a 21st century version of that, where the milk marketing board used to collect and wash and look after all of those, you know, the, the, um, the glass bottle that was used by everybody, it could be exactly the same. This already happens. It already happens with the water industry in Germany, where everybody uses the same glass bottle and simply the label changes. And that bottle is washed and used many, many, many times. It doesn't, it's not used once and then it has to go into a recycling system. The beer industry, great example. That certainly in Scandinavia and most of Europe, the beer industry, those bottles are washed again and again. And even then, if they, if they are broken, if they're scuffed, if they're dented, if any of those, if there's a problem with that bottle, that jar, whatever it is, then it's within a, a closed system that it can then be recycled into another jar. Mm, and not downcycled into road aggregates or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And we haven't got, you know, and then imagine a day where in your kitchen, instead of a recycling bin and God knows where it goes, some kind of container ship off to Turkey, imagine you could have a reusables bin, a smart bin that actually registers that you've put all those things in the bin and your waste management company are not just collecting waste, they're collecting the permanent packaging because they're already coming, they're already coming to the door and they can then be part of bringing it back and putting it into that system. So I think when this happens and it will happen, these brands and retailers, are they've signed a letter of intent. We're on our second and third workshops now of what are the roadblocks to get into this Nirvana? How can we accelerate this? Everybody knows it's the final solution. It's lower in carbon because obviously so much less energy is going to be used. Uh, it, obviously, it's lower in, in resource, in materiality itself. It makes so much sense. I don't, as a customer, why am I being forced to spend such a vast percentage of the price of anything on a piece of packaging, majorly plastic, that I put in a bin to become part of the problem? And I think we will soon wake up and think, wow, why was it ever okay for me to walk into a Boots or a Superdrug and a Tesco and it's like Jurassic Park of coloured plastic that is never going to be recycled. Mm. So I think we, we will look back and we'll, we'll get to a place where these changes can happen very, very, very fast. We need proof points, but we mustn't call it test cases. We mustn't call it pilot studies because it's too important than that. We're not trialling it. We're, we're learning as we go. Mm. So we, we will iterate and learn but the mission can never fail that we need to move to permanent reusable packaging. Mm. And as you say, there are just so many plus points. Um, I've interviewed Joe Chidley, who you mentioned um, back in episode um, uh, 90 something, I think it was about um, re her reusable packaging um, standard for, for beauty products. And so um, I think if Joe's behind this, <laughs> it's definitely going to go places, isn't it? Um, she's I a force, a force love, for nature. And also um, what, I, what I love about the Chidley is that no ego. They're doing this because they understand how to do it. Mm. They already do it with their own brand. They understand the system that needs to be built. It's not about ownership. It's about... It's mission critical. Let's just get on and do it. And it's not about ego. Yeah. And that is so refreshing in this world. Yeah, absolutely. And back in episode 103, um, Brian and Chris from Al Gramo were telling us that typically in grocery products, the cost of packaging can be up to 40 percent of the shelf price. Um, so to make things more affordable, clearly making that packaging work over and over again instead of um, you know, take, make and then chuck it away has got to be the way forward, hasn't it? So that that kind of links into something that you've mentioned a few times already, which is the need for systems thinking. And, um, you know, maybe maybe some of the levers of change have got to be systems thinking type levers of change. Um, and so, you know, you mentioned that investors are now 
a group of stakeholders that are interested in what the companies they invest in are doing and whether that's good or bad for people and planet. And I've also seen more activity from insurers thinking about um, maybe some of these class actions around health and so on. Um, is there anything else that you want to say about about those kind of levers of change and systems thinking? Ultimately, what we've got to do is move the money. At the moment, the money, our pension schemes even, everything is still going down the road of backing fossil fuels as the answer. It's, it's going to be difficult because, you know, I look today at the news from BP and the extraordinary amount, I think it was four billion profit in the last quarter. So it's very, very difficult for us to, to turn away from things that give us that short-term return. But that short-term return, we all know, is, is going to create an unlivable planet for us, not just future generations, for us. It's happening so much faster than we ever thought. So again, we need to move the money to the opportunities of the future. Mm. And anyone who has control over those purse strings, we need to put pressure on. Mm. And you know, let's, let's look at the government of Norway. So Norway, the peacemaker of the world, Obviously, you know, it has the biggest sovereign fund in the world, trillions and trillions of euros. If we could encourage just the Norwegian government to show leadership, to say we're going to divest of all fossil fuels and their derivatives, i.e. big plastic, and we are going to do nothing but back the long-term solutions of the future, then that's the kind of leadership we need. It's really that simple, that nothing will happen until we move the money. Because at the moment, everything is tokenistic. Every consumer goods company will have trials, initiatives, pacts, pledges, marketing, greenwash, a lot of it. Whereas fundamentally, it's business as usual. Mm. And in order, in order to make change happen, we need the stakeholders, the shareholders to demand that business change faster. Yeah. And also, I think, because uh, I'm just reading the innovators dilemma um, a book that's been updated a few times. I think it first came out in the in the 90s. Um, and what's hard for companies to do is to look at new markets and new customers. So they're kind of looking at their important customers now and perhaps not seeing that some of them are starting to query what they're buying, but also that there's a, you know, a new co cohort of consumers elsewhere with completely different values. And eventually your existing customers will either fade away because, you know, they lose their spending power as they become pensioners or they, they die or whatever. But also their minds are shifting. But if you're not speaking to the new group of customers who are going to replace those, if you're not tuned into what they want, and we know that lots of uh, young people want to buy from companies that really are doing the right thing for people and planet, not just kind of putting out some marketing. And they are much much less in tune with the idea that owning stuff makes you happy so things are fundamentally shifting and if you're not looking at that as a big company then you're not really doing your homework properly and you know you risk being completely disrupted by a business that's much more tuned in to permanent packaging to plastic free products to healthy ingredients and healthy health uh, nutrients back to the back to the system and so on and i think that's that's what a lot of companies are not you know that like you say they're focused too much on the short term and they're not thinking about being on the bridge of the ship looking at what's coming up on the horizon i totally agree i worry a little bit about the fact that we think that the next generation care more because uh, there is a dichotomy of the massive rise of fast fashion like Sheen. Mm. And obviously the success of businesses like Boohoo and ASOS uh, and the uh, extraordinary, you know, the, the pollutive, depletive industries that the fashion, which makes me very sad as somebody who loves fashion, you know, that those industries have degenerated into. And, and you think, so what people say and what people do are very, very different things, as you know. Mm, yeah. And and so there is there is a whole swathe of um, millennials, particularly Gen Zs, you know, who who do want to live in a different way and who value experience over things more. But 
I think there's still a bubble. Mm. We need to make that bubble much bigger, much faster. But ultimately, I still think it's not down to them. I think if we if we wait, if brands are waiting for the rise of this ethical consumer to drive their business, then it will take too long and mm. we don't have time. No. And, and that's why it, we need laws. We need fiscal policy. We need those mechanics that force business to change faster, that create that level playing field for, for industry to change faster. Because fundamentally, people buy what they are sold. It's industry's job to sell them something different. And it's the government's job to mandate the industry do that faster. Mm. And those things aren't happening. It's stuck at the moment with people, certainly in the world of plastic, like, you, know, you will have the Coca-Colas of the world saying, if only we could educate the consumer to put it in the right bin. Like there's a system, once it is in the right bin, there isn't a system. Mm. So we've got to stop pretending that it's down to them. It isn't, it's down to industry. But who is industry? Human beings. So let's stop thinking about, you know, the, it, it's a bit like plastic. We're looking at the wrong end of the pipe. We're talking about waste. We're talking about the consumer when we should be talking about the tap. We should be talking about why, why is industry not reinventing itself from the inside out? Everybody knows the future is about service versus commodity. I, I know many businesses who are, they are the, the former. They want to be the latter. They're looking at how they reinvent their entire model to become more service-based, less commodity-based, less resource-based. So I think we live in this very interesting time of business trying to reinvent itself. And some businesses will step over the line, that reinvention, and they will be the success stories of the future. Mm. Exactly as you say. And then some will be future dinosaurs. And some of the companies that we think are too big to fail, it's going to be extraordinary how many future Kodaks we see. Yeah. Yeah, and Kodak's one of the stories that I quite often use in my in my talks, and um, yeah, that was that was really interesting, how they failed to understand what their customers wanted all along, um, which is you know kind of what I was saying that there's there is this this group and it is a bubble and we do need to grow it, and maybe we have to encourage companies to think about what they're doing in the world, um, and as you said, you know, we are they providing nutrients to go back into one of those two streams. Um, so are they helping regenerate the planet? Um, as Paul, Paul Hawkins said, are you regenerate, are you healing the planet or stealing the future? You know, it's one of those two things. So, uh, you know, is what you're doing poisoning people and planet or is it providing nutrients for tomorrow and future generations? And it's kind of, you know, it's as simple as that really, isn't it? And you know, no company will be doing everything right, but it's kind of, you know, where are the biggest areas in which you're providing poisoning harmful stuff? Um, and what could you do to, to, to instead turn that into something that's permanent, keeps going round and round, or it's a, a genuine nutrient? One of the things I love to challenge any business with is does your business brand product, whatever it is, does it push back Earth Overshoot Day? And if it doesn't, what you're doing is wrong. Let's recognize that now. And if it does, do more of it. And it's super simple, really, mm. when you look at it that way. And obviously, as an entrepreneur, entrepreneurs have to make things super simple or you can't move forward. You have to see solutions, not problems, opportunities. You know, otherwise, it's, um, you couldn't get up in the morning. And I think taking that mindset into the crises that we're in right now is really, really important. And just challenging yourself with basic fundamental questions, simplifying things down. Everybody makes things too complicated. There are so many reasons why we can't change from where we are today. I don't want to hear them. I'm just, you know, my, my only power is my radical naivety that I don't know the reasons why not. I don't want to know them. Don't tell them to me because it will stop us moving forward and forward is the only direction that we can go. Mm, brilliant. Another, another really nice quote that I'll be tempted to, to use in the, uh, in the podcast promo. So on to our quickfire questions then, Sean. First of all, what have you struggled with most and what surprised you in the years since you set up a plastic planet? 
I wish I'd thought about that question more before you asked me today. <laughs> but as a, you know, it's always good if you just say the first thing that comes to mind. Um, I, I think the pace of change is the frustration to me. And here we are, we are five years now since Blue Planet 2. We're five years since we launched the Plastic Free Isle in Amsterdam, um, trying to demonstrate the change was, was possible. And so it frustrates me and the biggest challenge is the pace of change. So all I look at now is what are the levers of change? What are the accelerants of change? And number one is, is the extraordinary availability of scalable viable solutions today. They're there which is why we built Plastic Free, to, to give them more oxygen and, and bring everybody into connection with them. Uh, and, and then moving the money and the resistance that we have and the intransience within industry of um, realizing that there will be no global South market opportunity for them if we don't change very, very fast. And when you see people talking about where their ingredients come from, you just think, well, they won't be there because mm. they, you know, we will not be able to grow those particular ingredients, those crops in those markets, in those countries going forward. And it's happening so much faster. So the level of denial, I think, is still quite extraordinary. Nobody's denying uh, that there is a climate crisis. Definitely nobody denies. There are no plastic deniers out there. But the the recognition of business being the tool of change a fast change i think is a is a frustration to me that business doesn't realize how it can be a massive part of the solution no longer part of the problem mm. yeah i think you're right and that's what i'm trying to work on now is creating the business case for businesses but making sure that that business case doesn't end up encouraging people to do things that then create rebound you know because we now think oh this is okay i can buy loads of it <laughs> we've got to we've got to avoid that as well so it's a, a a balancing act so when you're talking to businesses that want to start or, or go circular um you know what's your number one top tip for them and that might be something you've already touched on it probably is something i've already touched on because i think that world overshoot day question is quite a fundamental one does, does whatever you're creating, does it push back World Overshoot Day? Because I think now we have to be so brutally honest with ourselves. If the answer is no, don't make it. And really, really challenge whatever we're doing. Is it, is it going to help make our planet more livable going forward? Is it going to be additive in any way? Because the world does not need more stuff mm. that is completely generic. We are overwhelmed with choice right now and i think we need to edit the choice down we need to reinvent entirely new business models i can't wait to get to the future that i think that humankind can set a um, plot a course to i think it's going to be super exciting it's going to be extraordinary so my challenge to business is always that number one use plastic as the gateway because plastic is a really extraordinary mechanic because it brings teams together. Everybody feels guilty about plastic. And if we fix the plastic problem, we will directly and indirectly fix so much else. So use it as the gateway because carbon, it's very difficult for people as individuals to get their head around. I don't know, I can't see it, I can't feel it, I can't touch it, plastic. As a shopper, as an individual, whatever I watch on TV, I feel guilt about it every single day. I don't want to be part of, of, of continuing that crisis itself. So I think if you, if you just pick one thing within your business, pick plastic because it's highly popular. Mm, that's, and, yeah. and it will, it, it'll have so much more extraordinary impact than you ever dreamt because it's such an extraordinary gateway. Mm. Yeah, I think that's, that's a really interesting take and, and um, it could be a really, way, a really exciting conversation opener with lot with a lot of companies particularly those those that are wrestling with where do we even get started with carbon um mm. because it's a lot easier to kind of understand where the plastic is in in your business so thank you and sean who would you recommend as a future guest for the circular economy podcast i've got two people i know you've asked me for one but let me give you two because well one would be my dream podcast person who I've never met but I have so much respect for and that is Kate Rayworth 
who obviously um, created the donut economy principles and I think her TED talk, the way she simplifies everything down that you just think, duh, of course we have to stay within societal and planetary constraints. Of course we have to do this. How bonkers that we think, uh, you know, ongoing, never-ending growth is possible on a planet with finite resources, duh. But I think her practical tools and the entire movement that she has created this is her time. And I, I think she would be a fantastic podcast um, guest for you. And then the second person who I have known for a couple of years, because I sit on the Bridge Beauty Council Sustainability and she, she is co-chair of that. And I think she is just a genuinely wonderful person, super humble, but really great in everything she does. And she is the country lead CEO uh, of Walida. And Walida, I think, are a really amazing skincare, personal care company. And the principles that that company is based on, imagine if every business in future was based on those principles. And I know we all say, isn't it great, Patagonia, you know, they're now saying stakeholder, their only stakeholder is nature. It's kind of easy to say that when you've made your billions and you built your business on plastic. Let's be honest, you know, technical fabrics are largely made out of plastic. So huge respect for Patagonia. But then I look at a company like Walida and their principles came from the very beginning. They have always had nature as, as a, a primary stakeholder. In fact, they rewrote the statute, their articles of association of their very business to embed nature. So they were there first. Obviously, Rudolf Steiner was one of the co-founders. The provenance of their ingredients, their biodynamic principles, everything they do, there is not a single microplastic in any of their formulations. Yes, they use plastic in their packaging. Yes, they'd love not to. Um, so obviously, there's work. To, there's, every company has jobs to be done. But I think that business model, and it's successful, doing good does not mean bad business. It does not mean that you cannot make profit. We just should no longer make profit at the behest of everything else. And that's been our model for decades. And I really um, celebrate businesses like we're leader of doing things differently. So I think Jane would be an extraordinary guest for you as well. Fantastic. Well, I'm a really big fan of Kate Raworth's work and uh, the Waleeda story sounds fascinating. So thank you very much. And I'll follow up with both of those. So the big the big question then, if you could wave a magic wand and change just one thing to help create a better world, what would that be and why? It's super simple. I'd ban plastic. And I know that sounds draconian in many ways because it, we're so dependent on it for the lifestyle that we currently have. But I think if we banned it, we would create a vacuum where innovation, these, grew, these green shoots of new ways of us imagining that different future would sprout very, very, very quickly. And it's only when you ban something that you create that vacuum. So that would be my simple request. Yes, so I if think. You, if, you get, if you get into Parliament, Catherine, can you just do that for me? Somebody, um, uh, one of my podcast guests was, was off to see uh, Prime Minister Rishi Sunak the other the other day and posted on LinkedIn to say, you know, she'd got this this slot and did anybody have any questions for her to raise? So I wrote back kind of cheekily to say, ask him if he remembers somebody talking to him about one of his constituents talking to him in about 2018, you know, going on and on about the circular economy and how many opportunities it could provide to the UK. Um, so uh, obviously that was tongue in cheek, but yeah, I think nagging Parliament is as, is as close as I'm going to get um, to policy making. Um, but yeah, get, coming back to to your top tip, it's that phrase, isn't it? Constraints drive innovation, and if we don't have the constraints, then we just carry on with with incremental improvements instead of really radical, um, world changing things. So look at us now. Look at us talking on Zoom, doing a podcast on mm -hmm. Zoom. You know, I'm, I'm sitting in Lisbon. This would not, we would not have considered that this was even a possibility or an acceptable level of change if COVID hadn't happened. Mm. And within a couple of years, it's normal, isn't it? So yeah, um, lots of things can, can transform in what feels like, you know, a, an overnight sensation. So Sean, how can people find out more about you and a plastic planet and get in touch? 
Well, I always say that LinkedIn, I think, is is a, an incredible way to, to to build a community and communicate. So please find me on LinkedIn, can connect with me, um, because I, I I really enjoy the interactions on that. I do have my my haters, but you know, let's move on. At least you know you're impacting if somebody you know bothers to hate you. Um, uh, and then obviously you can contact us at Sean at aplasticplanet.com or Sean at plasticfree.com and then sign up on please join us. I implore everybody. We we need we need more people to jump on the plastic free mission express. And you can do that by subscribing and joining plasticfree.com. Great stuff. Thank you. And I'll put all those links in the show notes. And um, make sure I update the, uh, I think I've referred to it a couple of times in uh, previous episodes or blogs. So get those updated as well. So, Sean, that's been fantastic. Um, I'd love to talk for for longer. I I love your take on things. And I think the work that you and the Plastic Planet team are doing is just brilliant. Um, And so lots of luck with... (laughs) Right back at you, Catherine. Thank you for everything that you're doing and putting all these messages out into the world and for your support. It's really, really appreciated. We cannot do this alone. All of us, we need to come together like we never, ever have before. We've we've got one enemy out there. It's called status quo. Let's not pretend that it served us well. It hasn't. So, yeah. you know, coming together like this, I think is is really great. Thank you. Thank you very much. And best of luck with the next phase of, of all the great projects that you're involved in. Thank you. I love Sean's theory that plastic is the last century's material. And now we know how harmful it can be, we need to come up with new systems and new materials to replace it. Sean is creating and championing new tools, approaches and examples of these better systems and materials. We heard about PlasticFree.com, the systems and solutions platform for creatives, designers, makers, technologists, marketers and strategists. PlasticFree.com is connecting people with better alternatives to plastic, materials that can become nutrients for future products or for nature, instead of becoming poisons and pollutants at the end of use. In episode 107, Sean described the new plastic-free degenerate trainer, a sneaker with materials made by Natural Fibre Welding, NFW. NFW is pioneering ways to avoid the destructive recycling processes that prevent materials like cotton being reused for the same kind of products. We touched on greenwashing and the complex issues of materials like vegan leather and textiles. And they sound like an ethical way to reduce our footprints, but often they contain plastics as well. So, we might have avoided using a byproduct from the meat industry, but we've ended up using materials that can't be effectively recycled. Then, Sean and I shared our outrage about the ethics of calling something recyclable when so often no re- local recycling system exists, and providing one would add millions to the cost of local services. I was all in on Sean's call for the word recyclable to be banned. We dug deeper into the challenges for today's creatives and how, especially for designers, makers and material technologists, understanding chemistry is becoming essential, both the chemistry of human-made materials and how we can work with nature's chemistry to create regenerative alternatives, nutrients instead of poisons. Plus, chemistry and biology can help us find ways to work with nature to make problematic substances safe. Sean described nature being binary, that something's either a nutrient or it's not. Scientists have discovered a tiny number of species that can deal with problematic waste and poisons. For example, plants have adapted to the toxic conditions created by nuclear waste from Chernobyl, and scientists are investigating how microbes might help clean it up through a process called bioremediation. Scientists are also working to identify microbes that can feed on ocean and other waste plastics. However, these discoveries are few and far between, and often the pollution has already poisoned humans and many other living species. 
That brought us on to public perceptions, shaped, of course, by the plastic industry. We think that plastic is inert, and yet, as scientists are discovering, it mostly isn't. Often, plastic contains problematic chemicals that are released in use and at the end of use, whether that's in disposal or recycling. Plus, there are microfibers which can act as carriers for toxins. These end up all across our food chains, in drinking water, and inside every part of our bodies. So, it's no wonder that we're seeing increasing rates of cancer, neurological disorders, and other non-communicable diseases across all age groups. It's important to emphasise these health risks when we think about recycling. The plastics industry and some big consultancies tell us that we can recycle our way to a circular, sustainable future. But with current materials and current recycling technology, we definitely can't. It's a false solution. As Sean said, and as Maria Westerbos explained back in episode 82, these health issues are serious and systemic, and mean our health is likely to be the catalyst, the essential tipping point for systemic change. Sean highlighted the massive range of, of human-made chemicals or novel compounds that companies are using. Around 140,000 known chemicals, with only around half of these being tested and often not tested alongside the other chemicals they'll be combined with in industrial use. Here, Shan pointed to the work of some leading scientists who are starting to draw links between these chemicals and the rise of other major diseases, including diabetes and obesity. In episode 108, we moved on to talk about the power of marketing, and I mentioned neuromarketing techniques used to trigger brain chemicals that motivate us into doing what the marketer wants. That took us to a few ways to step off that hamster wheel, whether that's avoiding the checkout altogether or finding safer, simpler and cheaper alternatives to those multi-chemical products that we're told will make our lives so much easier. Next, we discussed the concept of permanent packaging, including the work of the Reusable Packaging Coalition, an initiative set up by Joe Chidley and Stuart Chidley, You might remember Joe Chidley from episode 84. The Renewable Packaging Coalition is working with big, fast-moving consumer goods brands and major retailers in the UK to create and roll out a convenient system for household collection of reusable packaging, so it can be sanitised, relabeled and refilled by the brands. This sounds brilliant, a game-changer, and it's great to hear that some really big players are working on this. Shan shared her frustration with the tokenistic approach of many companies. Trials, initiatives, pacts and pledges. A lot of it just good intentions or even greenwash. I mentioned Professor Clayton Christensen's influential book from the 1990s, The Innovator's Dilemma, which unpacks key systemic blockages that handicap big businesses and prevent them reacting to or getting on board with disruptive innovations. The Kodak story is a great example of that. And yet, Kodak's decline wasn't inevitable. Fuji, Kodak's closest competitor, took a different, very radical approach, leveraging its chemical expertise and reinventing itself as a supplier of niche chemicals for a wider range of markets. Over just 10 years, Kodak crashed from market leader to bankruptcy, while Fuji increased its revenue by 50%. These system scale initiatives are critically important. We need big levers to change things. So many of our current business models, policies and habits are based on thinking from the last century. Now we're starting to realise how much of that is based on false assumptions and silo mentalities. Virtually every business and every product is causing harm to us, to living creatures, or to the earth systems we depend on. We're all part of that system. As donut economist Kate Rayworth says, we inhabit the only known living planet in the universe. 
I loved Sean's simple benchmark. Are you making choices and changes that push back Earth Overshoot Day? If not, it's time to rethink your approach. We're at a critical turning point where we have the opportunity to wake up and do things differently. Let's make less but better. Let's share and use instead of owning stuff that isn't something we intend to keep and care for. Let's repair and remake. These are all profitable strategies with growing customer bases. If you're in business and not already thinking about these strategies, then it's time to get started before it's too late. Don't succumb to the Kodak syndrome. You need to disrupt or your company might die. So massive thanks to our guest, the amazing Sean Sutherland, for sharing so many of her insights and ideas with us. Thanks also to Simon Hombersley at Zampler and Romy Samaria of the Oblique Life podcast for making this episode possible. And as always, thanks to you for listening, sharing and being part of the solution. You can find out more about Sean Sutherland, A Plastic Planet and PlasticFree.com. Follow them on social media and check out all the other links we mentioned in the show notes at circulareconomypodcast.com. I believe we can all help make the circular economy happen through the choices we make at work and in our everyday lives. Buying pre-used, keeping what we have for longer, repairing it and making sure it has another life. Those choices send strong signals to companies and governments, making it clear we all want a better, circular and regenerative future. We can all help spread the word too. Talk about the circular economy and help other people find this podcast by leaving us a rating and a review on your podcast app. Email a screenshot of your review to podcast at rethinkglobal.info and we'll give you a shout out on the show. We've made it easier for you to find episodes on the key circular economy strategies or for a market sector or specific countries. Check out our interactive podcast index. There's a link on the podcast homepage at circulareconomypodcast.com and every episode includes an interview transcript. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, then please check out episode one, episode two and episode 101. You could also buy a copy of my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business. The book takes you through the concepts and the practicalities with hundreds of real examples from all around the world. The Circular Economy podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, helping you succeed with circular. You can find information on our talks, workshops, coaching and advice and circular economy resources at rethinkglobal.info or connect with me, Catherine Wheatman, on LinkedIn. LinkedIn.